0: Good morning, Waypoint Church. Morning. My name is Eric Weiner. I'm one of the pastors here at Waypoint, and I'm so so excited to be with you this morning. Uh, this is part two in our three-part series on the Apostles' Creed. Last week, Pastor Danny uh, gave us a, a helpful overview of, of the history of the Apostles' Creed and told us about creeds and confessions and what they are and why we have them, and, and, and he also shared about God the Father as he looked at this first section of, of the Apostles' Creed, and and next week, Pastor Lawrence is, is going to be sharing more on the Holy Spirit, uh, which, which I'm excited about. I, don't, I want to set it up for him. I'm going to let, leave that as a teaser for him to, to unfold, unpack for us. Um, but I, I have the privilege of this morning, this morning getting to, to proclaim to you the beauty of Jesus Christ and the mystery of, of the second person of the Trinity in all his splendor and glory. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And, and I want to go ahead and, and read part of the Apostles' Creed for you—the the part that we're going to be spending our, our time on this morning. Just so that you're with me, so that you're tracking with me. And this is a section on, on Jesus Christ. It says, "I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. He, asc- he descended to hell. The third day, He rose again from the dead." He ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. So that's our section. Uh, now, why, why Pastor Danny only got a, a short section, why his section was, uh, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, uh, obviously he, he had a, a lot less to cover. I, I have quite a bit to cover this morning. Um, and, and you may be wondering why. why. Why is there so much more devoted to Jesus than there is to God the Father. Um, Well, the the simple answer is that there's consensus about the Father. Nobody in the early church was was asking or debating or or trying to figure out who is God the Father. They they knew who God the Father was. There was no debate on this. There's no further apologetic that was needed. One scholar puts it this way. He says, "...the problem of the early church was not what to do with the Old Testament in light of the gospel." But rather, the reverse. In light of the Jewish scriptures, how are Christians to understand the good news of Jesus Christ? And so this is what, what the, the, these creeds and, and these councils, this is what they're, they're trying to do. They're trying to figure out this question. Who is Jesus? We have to get Jesus right. Because Jesus is the linchpin of our faith. All of God's spoken revelation was pointing to him. And so the church was now trying to understand these realities of, of the Old Testament Scriptures in light of, 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 of Jesus and his coming and, and what this means for them and how they're to live now in light of what Jesus has accomplished for them, for us. And so with this in view, there are four things I want to address with you this morning. First, his title. Second, his birth. Third, his suffering. His suffering. And fourth, his reign. And I have one overarching goal in in all of this. One one thing that, my my aim that I want you to see in in all of this is is this. That you would look to the throne of King Jesus. That you would look to the throne of King Jesus and marvel at his love for you. Now we should reject the idea that having a deeper understanding of Jesus is, is purely an academic exercise. No, it's It's not. Pressing deeper into the beauties of incarnation, resurrection, and ascension should leave you with awe and wonder at the glory of God in Christ. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. It's number one, his title. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Now our opening line this morning is packed with significant titles about Jesus. Jesus. And in fact, there's even more than these titles. There's more titles to, to unpack and to unfold that, 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 that the New Testament speaks about. Here they talk about his sonship, him being the only son of God. Which has clear implications about his position. Jesus is God. That's our claim. Hebrews 1.3 says, The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. First John 5, 5 asks, Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes in Jesus, the Son of God. Another title that, that we see in the creed here is, is Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. In case you were wondering, Jesus Christ. He didn't put that on, on his birth certificate, no. Christ means Messiah. It's Greek for Messiah. It means anointed one. And it has, it's laden with all of these meanings about the anointed offices in, among the people of Israel and how the people of Israel could relate to God. These roles of prophet, priest, and king that we talk about are all pointing people and in, in, in dealing with the, how people can relate to God. And John 1 is telling us that Jesus, who is the Christ, the anointed one, is the one who makes the Father known to us fully. We come to know the Father through Jesus But for our purposes this morning, I want to focus on Jesus' lordship. Jesus is Lord. And more specifically, as the creed points out to us, Jesus is our Lord. Here's what's at stake with Jesus' lordship. If we get this wrong as Christians, then we are committing egregious blasphemy. Are you with me? If, Jesus, if we're claiming that Jesus is God and he is not, we're not saying that there's not God, but, but Jesus is God, then we have a problem. I mean, just think about this for a moment. Think about the, the, the kind of praise that, that we give to Jesus. And then think about the Christian songs that, that we sing. Think about, about figures in the Bible and, and, and the, the ones that we celebrate the most, that we talk about it most often, who, who we hold in high esteem. Abraham, for example, right? Abraham is the father of our faith. The offspring will come through the line of Abraham. We're children of Abraham. What kind of song does Abraham get? Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's all I know. I didn't grow up in the church. so um, <laughs> That's the song that Abraham gets. What about Moses? Moses got to go up. On the mountain. Moses was the mediator. He got to see, he he got to to go before the presence of God on behalf of the people. We celebrate Moses. We lift him up, right? What song does Moses get? Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh no. That's that's the song that that Moses gets, right? Those are fun. They're, They're enjoyable. They're catchy. But what does Jesus get? What songs do we sing about Jesus? We sing about Jesus' great name. That he that he is his name is above every other name. We sing about the empty tomb. We celebrate this. We sing about his great love. My life is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. These are songs of worship. We don't worship Moses. We don't worship Abraham. We worship Jesus. And there's only one person in human history, who's deserving of that? And our claim as Christians is that Jesus is that one. He's the one that we worship. In Philippians two ten and 11, Paul, Paul brings this to our attention. He says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, this is a huge declaration about the divinity of Jesus. It's even bigger than, than you realize. Let me tell you why. Later on in Philippians, Paul declares about himself. He, he starts naming off his credentials. He says, I, I'm, a, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I, I'm a Pharisee uh, circumcised on the eighth day of, of the tribe of Benjamin. He's, he's just listening off all these things. In other words, he's saying, I, I know my stuff. I know the Old Testament scriptures. I, I am... Righteous under the law. Blameless under the law. I know what I'm talking about. And here, then, Paul would know that he's quoting from the prophet Isaiah. He's quoting directly from the prophet Isaiah. Listen to the words of the Lord recorded in Isaiah 45. This is God himself speaking. God says, By myself I have sworn... My mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone, our deliverance and strength. Now, alone is an exclusive term. It means no one else, right? English is hard, but that, that's pretty straightforward. In context, the word Lord, Lord is not a title here. The word Lord is, is in all caps, meaning it's, it's signifying something else. It's signifying something greater. It's, it, it's, it's almost like a placeholder, but, but it's, it's signifying the, the very name of God. Well, we, we would say Yahweh, but we, the reason why we say Yahweh is because it's, it's the combining of, of, G, of, of God's name with the word Adonai, the vowels from Adonai, which means Lord. And the reason why they would do that, the reason why the biblical authors would do that, is because the name of God was so holy that they wouldn't even utter it. It was too holy to say. And Paul is saying, what Paul is doing here is he is substituting the name of Yahweh, the Lord, with Jesus. That's not a small change. God said, alone, me alone. Jesus is the one. In other words, Paul is saying, the things proclaimed about the Lord in Isaiah are being realized in Jesus. Jesus is the name above every name. He is Lord, and His Lordship gives Him rightful claim over everything. Because what in God's created world doesn't belong to Him? Now, this, Jesus' Lordship, this is where many of us will struggle. It's where people have struggled throughout human history. We become so accustomed to, to dictating the terms for our lives. We'd much rather be our own Lord. In in fact, some people think that the the dream job situation, the dream job scenario would be to be their own boss. If I get to call the shots, if I get to dictate the terms, I I I can set my hours, I can set my pay, I can do what I want. I answer to myself. That would be the dream, whatever that looks like. Because we don't want to answer to anyone. But if Jesus is Lord, if that's true, then this is a moot point. It doesn't even matter anymore. At that point, we must either confess that we are not our own but belong wholly to God or that we're rebels on the run. There is no middle ground. Casual indifference toward Jesus is not an option Now, we can busy ourselves by assessing what other people have to say about Jesus. What do you have to say? What do you think? Who do you think he is? But eventually, we must answer the same question that Jesus asked his disciples. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? In the verse before the section we just read in Isaiah 45, the Lord says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. God wants us to reckon with the truth. This is incredibly generous of him. You see, in context, the God of the universe is inviting the nations to rethink their sinful ways. Meaning we all have problems that require solutions that go beyond ourselves. But God is inviting us to accept him as God. And what we're seeing in Jesus is that he's not playing around. He's very serious. That's why he came. And so we must learn to accept him on his terms. And, and as we come and see what God has done, as we look at at, at the baby in the, in, the, in the manger, we must also consider what, what are those terms that God is calling us into. What's true about ourselves? What's true about God? What is he doing with us? Number two, his birth. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Now, Philippians 2, 6, and 7 says about Jesus that being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And in Galatians 4, 4, and 5, Paul says, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption. Now, we just said we we all have problems that require external solutions. But Jesus is not a Lord who is indifferent to our reality. In fact, it's the very opposite. Do you you really think that Jesus decided to, to come down to humble himself out of obligation? Is that, is that why he did it? To, out of obligation to, to us? The Lord of the universe? I, I love weddings. I love going to weddings. I love... I, I think that they're great. And there are three things in particular that, that I especially love that I look forward to every wedding I go to. The first is, is seeing what the flower girl and the ring bearer do. I always feel like they're, they're a wild card. You, you never know what you're going to get. You're <laughs> really funny. The second is uh, when, when the, the doors open, everybody stands for the bride who's about to enter. I like to look at the groom. Everybody looks at the bride. I like to look at the groom. I'm not saying don't look at the bride because she's always beautiful, right? She's the most beautiful person in the room at that moment. But I look at the groom because he can't contain, like, I, I, I like to see what, what kind of reaction he gets. At seeing, at seeing his bride coming. I can relate to that. The third thing that I like is, is hearing the best man and maid of honor speeches. I love to, to hear the, the different perspectives that they, that they bring about these, these people who are getting married. Hearing their stories and, and laughing together and, and, and being in a feast together. But if I don't know the bride or groom, let me, let me be honest for a second here. Maybe this is wrong of me. It probably is. Um, but if, if I'm there out of obligation because I don't, I don't know anybody there, I don't know the bride or the groom, I'm not on either side, then I'm looking for the first socially acceptable moment to jettison out of there. I just, I just am. Maybe, maybe it's because I'm an introvert. But really, because it's, it's out of obligation. Because don't those motivated by obligation tend to do the bare minimum? You see, not only is Jesus not obligated, but in fact, he is eager to draw near to us. He's the one who initiates the conversation. The virgin birth is Jesus's, in the virgin birth, Jesus is making an emphatic statement about his commitment. He went out of his way to burden himself with our burden so that we might receive his unburden. Now, it's important to understand that when when God became man, he didn't cease being God. He was no less God on the day of his birth than than at the beginning of the universe. It wasn't God minus some attributes, but rather God plus human flesh. God in the flesh. Fully God. Fully man. Without sin. Now, there are two quick things I want to talk about 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 the virgin birth that, that I want us to understand. And the first is this. It is a supernatural act of God. The birth of Jesus is blatantly supernatural. That Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit lends itself to this conclusion. God has done it. Philippians 2, 6, and 7 says that Jesus did not consider equality with God as something to be be used to his own advantage. Another translation says to be grasped. Meaning Jesus wasn't self-motivated, but looking with intent to be generous toward others. Now, by the way, supernatural does not mean ahistorical, right? It, it, when we look at the, the, the gospel accounts and we see the story of, of Joseph and Mary, they, they attest to this as, as much. Not that any of you were, were asking this question or are considering this, but when Mary told Joseph that she was pregnant, there weren't a list of possibilities going through his mind as he thought about, how could that be? No, Joseph... Joseph thought only one thing. And if you heard that, you would think only one thing. Mary was unfaithful. And that's why he was, Joseph was going to divorce her. And he would have had God not intervened. You see, God was gracious to communicate this to Joseph. To, to affirm that he was doing a new thing through this child. The virgin birth reveals God's initiative in acting on behalf of sinful people. That the word of God dwelt among us means that salvation is drawn near and any one of us can get in on it. Second thing is Jesus' humanity is meant to identify with us. Now Jesus didn't need to become man to understand what humanity was like. The Gospel of John tells us that Jesus knew the hearts of men. He knows us. He knows what we're like. He didn't need to put on flesh to know that. In some ways, his enfleshment was meant to help us trust that God knows what we're dealing with. It was for us to know that he knows. We can't even second guess that now. Jesus understands the weaknesses and challenges of the human nature, he understands what we're walking through. He knows what it's like to be tired. To be hungry, to grow weary, to experience pain, to be overwhelmed with emotion, to be betrayed, mocked, shamed. He knows. But even more than Jesus being able to sympathize with us is that at the virgin birth, he is choosing to identify with us. We needed a sinless human representative. So God sent his son, born of woman, Under the law, he humbled himself. Jesus' birth is the cosmic declaration that he has come to stand in our place to bring salvation for many. To do for us what we were incapable of doing for ourselves. He humbled himself to the role of servant in human flesh so that everything under his lordship might be redeemed by his life. Number three, his suffering Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. Now that last statement, I, I, I'm not going to spend too much time on, um, because scholars and, and, and theologians have, have debated over, over the years, over the centuries, about what that line means, he descended into hell. Some, some think that maybe it's referring to, to 1 Peter 3. Uh, others, I've, I've read one commentary that said maybe we've lost the, the, the meaning of, of what, what he's talking about. Um, I, I, I'm not going to spend time on it just because I don't have time for it. But um, I, I will include some some information, some resources for you in case you're, you're interested after after the sermon's posted, so that you can explore that if you if you'd like to. This week, in, in preparation for for the sermon, I, I was asking multiple people. You know, what do you think about the Apostles' Creed? What's what's been your experience with it, or what questions do you have about it? I thought I was I, I'd done all this research, all this studying. I thought I was prepared for it. And then then my wife asked me. Well, why Pilate? And I thought that was an interesting question. Like, why? I tried to give her the answer at the top of my head. She didn't really seem to, to buy it. Um, and so I thought, well, I, I'm going to try to come up with a better answer for this. So why why Pilate? Why, why not Caiaphas, the high priest who, who's involved in this? Or why not add a line about Jesus' miracles or, or other parts of his ministry? Well, there's two answers that, that I'd like to, to throw out for you. The first is, The suffering of Pontius Pilate highlights the innocent condemned. When I was younger in my faith, when I was in high school, I often struggled with this story about Pontius Pilate. When you read the Gospel accounts, he seems like somebody who's trying to do the right thing, but just doesn't know what to do. That seemed commendable to me at the time, but when you take a closer look at the story of Pontius Pilate, the accounts given in the Gospels, I think you see a different story unfolding that is less commendable. In Luke 23, 14 and 15, Pilate says, "'You brought me this man,' the religious group, the, the Jews, brought Jesus to him, to, to Pilate, to Rome. "'You brought me this man as one who is inciting people to rebellion. "'I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis "'for your charges against him. "'Neither is Herod, for he sent him back to us. "'As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death.'" I, I, I judge him innocent. But then in verse 23, it says, But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. When you think of world empires over the course of human history, and you think of, of, of ones that are, that are preeminent, who, who, what is the, the greatest empire of all time? Isn't, isn't Rome in the discussion Isn't the Roman Empire one of the the greatest, most powerful empires in human history? A picture of world power on display. Well, think about this. Picture this with me. One of the most readily available pictures that we have of one of the greatest world powers in human history is this baffling procurator who bends to the wishes of dissenting voices. Let it not be lost on you that Pilate didn't think Jesus did anything deserving of punishment and then acquiesced to a death sentence. Not only is that morally problematic, but it's poor governance. I mean, is this really power? This is the world power. The the dissenting voices prevail. What is ironic in this, is that the ones doing the condemning are the very ones deserving of condemnation. Jesus, the sinless Savior, is taking the place of sinful humanity willingly as one who brings true peace. He submits under this judgment. Number two, Jesus' suffering is for all to see. It's for all to see. Some of you may not know this about me, but when I was in high school, I was, I was in band. And I played the French horn. A little trivia question for you. Played the French horn. And, um, and at the end of every year in, in, um, for, for the, the, the year for band, we'd have a senior banquet. And at the senior banquet, all the seniors would get together. Our families would be there. And other, other band members, other young band, younger uh, classmates would, would be there. And, and the seniors would get to go up. And they'd get to, to share stories of their favorite senior moment or their, their favorite moment in being in band. This was mine. Junior year of high school, our band went on a trip to Chicago. I didn't want to go, so I, I declined. Figured, don't really want to go. Don't really want to spend that much time doing that. Uh, save my parents some money. Win-win. Mind you, this was during the school year, which means that we still had band class, which became a free period. And our classes, were, we were on a block, so it was like 90-minute period of free time. Nothing to do. No, no assignments. That was their idea, not mine. But I need to find something to do. And when you have uh, teenagers with nothing to do, that's a dangerous thing, folks. So, so I found, one day, I found a, a document in the band teacher's office that had a, a stamp of, of the principal's signature on it. And I decided, I had this great idea, that I would trace that signature... And then create a formal document giving myself permission to have an all-time hall pass. That I could leave at, at my discretion whenever I wanted with the principal's approval. He said I could do it. So I tell this story, and, and, and this actually worked on a substitute teacher. I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. I was, I was so shocked by it. This actually worked. Uh, this, this story was met with, with loud laughter. Uh, the students, the parents, all thought this was hilarious. The band teachers, on the other hand, did not know this story, and they were mortified. They're like, that you, you, You've got to be kidding me. One of the band teachers actually came up to me afterward, and she said, I'm choosing to believe that what you just said is fiction, because I would rather not believe that what you actually did that. I stand before you today saying, It's true. Absolutely did that. Here's the problem. What should have been embarrassing was spoken with pride. When you do something wrong, typically you try to hide it. You try to cover your base. You try to cover the ground. But the suffering Jesus endured under Pontius Pilate was public and done purposefully for all to see. And the cross was a humiliating form of judgment. Jesus' suffering under Pilate his being beaten, crucified, his death and his burial. These were real events that happened in human history. There's a specific moment where the eternal God came down into space and time to endure the corruption of wicked people. Now perhaps you think that you've gotten really good at hiding your sin. Maybe you think you're an expert on it now. But there's no denying the outward nature of sinful people. Not only can we not hide it, but we're more likely to publicly celebrate it. Let's not pretend that the times have changed on that. Yet Jesus knew this and was moved to action. And so we must ask, what did the suffering and death of Jesus accomplish? What does this mean? German theologian Herman Bobink writes this. He wrote... Christ put himself into fellowship with us, not merely in a physical sense, by putting on our nature, our flesh, and blood, but also in an ethical sense, by entering into fellowship with our sin and death. He stands in our place. He puts himself into that relationship to the law of God in which we stood. He takes our guilt, our sickness, our grief, our punishment upon himself, He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You see, Jesus has managed to act in extraordinary love all while maintaining the justice of God. In other words, we have found Jesus to be a true friend. The kind of friend that we all need. Real love shines a light on the truth. It doesn't diminish it to make relationships more convenient. Jesus doesn't give himself to us through compromise and convenience. He he doesn't need us like that. Rather, his entering into fellowship with us is honest, compassionate, and merciful. This kind of love is challenging and costly. It costs him a great deal. This, This is true love. Have you ever had someone love you like Jesus loves you? Romans 5, 7 and 8 says, One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would e- dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, Jesus didn't come because we asked for a favor. Jesus came out of a desire to pour out his favor on us. He was victorious. Church, what guilt is causing you to distrust the atoning work of Christ? What fears do you face that, that lead you to discount the confidence that you rightly share in Christ Jesus? Do you think Jesus is offended by your fears as if he's unfamiliar with the things that, that haunt you? Do you think he's, he humbled himself in order to guilt trip you into his love? The cross of Christ tells us that Christ is more for you than you are for yourself. And when at the cross, he didn't cry out, almost. No, he said, it is finished. Meaning you can rest in his love this morning, right now. And so the question is, will you receive him? Will you open yourself up to him? I love this quote from from preacher Charles Spurgeon about this very thing. He says this about Jesus. He says, if you go to Jesus, you will find him at home and on the lookout for, for you. He will be more glad to receive the, you than you will be to be received. I tell you again, he cannot reject you. That would be to alter his whole character and unchrist himself. To spurn a coming sinner, to, to, to turn away from, to, to push back, to, to, to deny a sinner, a wayward sinner who's coming to the Father would un-Jesus him and make him to be somebody else and not himself any longer. He cannot deny himself. He cannot deny the finished work that he has accomplished for you to make you righteous before God. Go and try him. Number four, his reign. On the third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Now most people, when they die, they stay in the grave, right? But Jesus rose after three days. And the scriptures tell us that he appeared to to over 500 people. You see, the resurrection and ascension of Christ are paramount to our faith. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says... If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And in Romans 4.25, he says, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised alive for our justification. If Jesus had died for our sins but had not risen, then we would still be in our sin. For he would have dealt with past sins, but present and future ones would still need dealing with. The sacrificial system would still be relevant to us, But Jesus rose from the grave and he sits at the right hand of the Father. His death deals with our sin once for all. And his being raised to life secures our justification. Justification is the application of Christ's work for us. He's making us right with God. He has done it and he's doing it. And so as we've been saying, this is good news for us. This is life-changing for us. We know and celebrate Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And we know that he is coming again to reign forever. But the question is, what is he doing right now? Is he just in some kind of passive rest? Or is he doing some kind of active rest? Is he on the move? Hebrews 7, 24 and 25 says that because Jesus lives forever, he is a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely. Totally, to the uttermost, those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. He always lives to intercede for them. This means, first of all, that Jesus' eagerness toward us has not dissipated. It remains steadfast as he intercedes for us. This is what Jesus does as our enthroned Savior and King. He's applying before the Father what he accomplished at the cross. Day by day, moment by moment. That's why Romans 8.34 says, Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. He's interceding for us. Jesus continues in a ministry of intercession. Not only has he accomplished the work of justification, but he is in charge of the moment by moment application of it that preserves us until he returns. Maybe for some of us, maybe for some of us, we get stuck in a rut. We have these moments or these seasons in our lives where we more or less ask the question to God, what am I really doing for you? Or am I really deserving of of your love? Or, Or why am I not doing more for the kingdom of God? But Jesus' sitting on the throne and interceding for us means that our faith journeys are never an independent endeavor. We are not alone as we grow in Christ. We are always with Him. He is always with us. Even when we haven't read our Bible enough, even when we haven't loved our neighbor well enough, even when we haven't sought the Lord's counsel soon enough, Jesus is faithful to intercede. He is praying to the Father for you. He doesn't forget. He doesn't miss. He's with you. He is for you. He sustains. And so as we end, I want to leave you with the final words from, from the last question on this section in the Heidelberg Catechism. And it reads this. It says, Question. How does Christ return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? Answer, in all distress and persecution, with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and remove the whole curse from me. Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. Amen. Waypoint Church, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we celebrate this confession, this, this word, this, this truth, this reality that Jesus, Jesus is the only Son of God. He is Christ our Lord. He reigns over all things and He is making all things new. He, is, he has come down to raise up all, every broken thing God, we trust you. We believe you. May we submit to you. Lord, it would un-Jesus you to turn away wayward sinners. So may wayward sinners rethink their lives. May they rethink the problems that they face. May they look outside of themselves to you, our answer, our rescue, our Savior. May we worship Jesus in spirit and truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.